Hi, this is Paul. Grizz dropped a little bit of this conversation in his video yesterday, which uh, lead, led me to catch it. And it was, it's a very interesting conversation between uh, Karen and Sevilla. Those of you around a little while know that Sevilla and her meaning code channel, or Sevilla, sorry, and her quality I don't think experience, um, existence, her quality channel, I'll say that. I, I can never remember if it's experience or existence. Um, Sevilla and her channel, Sevilla is the one who coined uh, this little corner of the internet. And Karen, Karen I've known for, for, for a while. She lives in the Bay Area and she has her meaning code channel. And, and Karen's had quite a few quite important conversations with some, some newish people that are sort of on the fringe here, um, Wolfgang, Smith, I think that's his last name, and uh, Michael Levin. And so Karen's, Karen's hosted a lot of those channels, and I guess monthly she's getting together now with Sevilla, and they're having a chat. And there's a really interesting section in this, in this chat that I wanted to play. I guess what they're trying to do is the same thing concerning something, and then I don't know how to define what exact, where, where they're looking for the convergence of these two. Now, I should say that this started out with um, Karen playing a little piece of the Jordan Peterson-John Verveke conversation. Dualities in what they're, in what they're talking about, which, but I do think that that's what they're talking about. I think that they're trying to point out through whatever lens they're looking at this with um, that, that, that this is the nature of reality. That's what I think this whole conversation's about. Except that... <clears throat> I mean, what I always hear coming from John, and I, I may be misunderstanding mm -hmm. him. I, I mean, now I know I'm misunderstanding because I haven't watched enough of his work. Even if I had watched all of it, I could still misunderstand him. But um, when he comes back to talking about the one, which he does later on mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, episode, um, I can't tell if he's saying the same thing that Jung meant when he talked about the one being the union of all human consciousnesses coming together, mm -hmm. um, dwelling in this universal consciousness together, and that that one is somehow what he's talking about. Because I don't think he's, I mean, when I think about unity and multiplicity i think about it much more in the terms that matthew pajot talks about it when he mm -hmm. wrote the book that that there is a one from which all the multiplicity all mm -hmm. the multiplicity came and that that one is is um is the one god who is manifest in three persons so you could say he's a you, you can't really say god is a person but you can say he is a personal god <laughs> So, um, which I think is slightly different way of looking at it, but, but that the universe came from him as, as a gift, um, life came as a gift. It's not something, I was, I was reading a really interesting article um, this morning that was written by Andrew Claven about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he wrote this article about, um, this idea that what we are experiencing, whether I, I think he was talking about a book by Yuval Harari called mm -hmm. um, Sapiens, Sapiens, and that in that book Harari says there really is no such thing as a nation or as a, as money. Mm -hmm. These are all just agreements that human beings make in the way that they think about it, and we right. and we all think about it together in the same way then that thing exists. Sure. So he's talking about the intersubjective, and she's about to talk about this a little bit. I've been thinking a lot more, I'm always thinking about this stuff, and, and thinking about how to articulate what, what the Peugeot brothers are bringing in in terms of, um, oh, I'll get to answer something, hang on. A lot of Jonathan Peugeot's work, I'm going to move a screen here, a lot of Jonathan Peugeot's work is talking about unity and diversity. It's, it's unity and diversity. It's one way to talk about it. Um, if I hold this up, you see a padlock. Now, if I tilt it this way, 
you see a padlock, but you see it that it's a combination lock. And for a lot of you, something sort of triggers in your mind that the, the oh, here's the lock. And let me make sure that I um, have it have it set so I know how to lock and unlock if I remember the combination. So here's the here's the lock. Here's the um, there's no key in it. And so in other words, it's a, it's a unity. It's a lock. If I put this lock on a gate, you'll probably see the gate and you'll see that the gate is locked. But in a sense, you still see one thing, which is the locked gate. And it's that reality of multiplicity and unity that we are always switching between. If I hold up a book like this, now you see it's a, if I hold it up like this, you see it's a book and you don't pay much attention to it. Now, if I hold it like this, you'll see the cover. You'll see this mosaic of the Apostle Paul. You might think about the book of Romans. You might have questions. You might see the author if you've recognized the author. You might know, well, that, that's, a, that's a New Testament book. So, so very quickly, very quickly, very quickly, one, one thing, which is a book, sort of becomes multiple things, and multiple things can become one thing. And of course, you can open it, and there's lots of words in it. And there's the ink on the page, and the ink on the page is you know has letters but the the letters don't really contain the book they express the book i mean this is this is some of the complexity that sevilla is right this whole little corner of the internet is wrestling with and and karen karen is a karen is a christian and so karen is is thinking about these things in terms of her worldview which is of course deeply shaped by christianity and they're working on this question and so we're listening, of course, to different people on the internet. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot, who is um, a member of the Orthodox Church. Um, John Verveke, who is a not an atheist, but a non-theist. And of course, we've talked about these things plenty. And John has been leaning into Neoplatonism, which um, via Plotinus and a bunch of whole, whole but there's Christian Neoplatonists and sort of pagan Neoplatonists, and they have the one and the relationship to the one. Of course, Augustine was a very famous Neoplatonist. Augustine, you know, one of the real founders of the Western Church. So all, all of these issues coming together, and that's really what Sevilla and, and Karen are talking about. But, I mean, that's, that's a convenient way of thinking about it, and we uh -huh. do use that language. Yeah. But the reality is... It's not just there because that's what we think about it. Yeah. We think about it because it's there. Right. We now she's about to clarify this with Clavin's question, because what Karen's really wrestling with is this question of fiction. And if you go back to Cosmic Skeptics, little video about Jordan Peterson, how Jordan Peterson talks about the Bible and a fiction, part of the reason that Peugeot sort of you know, sort of paused whenever Jordan would use that word fiction, because you can use that word fiction, but that's where Clavin's point's going to come in with, with Karen in here. We come to, um, Don Hoffman has gone way past that even when he says, we have adopted certain ways of behaving in order to interact with the reality that's there just to fit ourselves to it for survival, but mm -hmm. it isn't really there. Apples aren't really apples and tables mm -hmm. aren't really tables. It's just something that we have adapted to through evolution. Okay, and this question about really, and it isn't really there, gets into the question of, again, unity and multiplicity. Now, nobody's gonna, people in our culture are not going to say this lock isn't here but there might be elements of this lock that aren't salient to them. Now think about a lot of what Peterson has said about when we, when we see this lock, Peterson says, we, we see the meaning of the lock far, long, long. Um, we see the meaning of the lock before we see the object, which is the lock. And so, for example, if this lock is on the gate over here at Living Stones, then we're going to see a locked gate, and that's going to mean for us a barrier to entry, or if you're on the inside, it might mean that the church is locked when I'm leaving it at night, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the object that is the lock is, is not exactly what we think it is in terms of the history of 
let's say, reductive materialism, and these two are going to get into that. Mm-hmm. But I'm old-fashioned, and I think an apple is an apple. <laughs> I, I do, too, and yeah. I think that... Um, and this is where I really like, I'm going to bring Persig into it again, because this is what the one that the way of understanding it makes the most sense for me, because I'll tell you a lot of the, a lot of the complexities that these guys talk about is beyond me, you know, like, like I can't understand it on that high level. I have to understand it on a simpler level. And this is what Persig, Persig does for me. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is that, that, um, these societal rules that we have they they are actual entities in themselves they're patterns they're static patterns of value but they're on a certain level they're on a social level so these while you you while they exist as actual entities you know in in sort of the subjective realm let's just say they can't be measured like um you know like a molecule They, they can't be measured in, in, as a as a as a material entity because they're not, mm-hmm. but they are an you know they are evolved from the same source that created material entities, and this is you know so so his theory encompasses all of reality as static patterns. They just happen to be patterns of value that occur within the social strata, and the social strata is actually something that has evolved out of or emerged from really the, the emergence is a much better way to understand it that than evolution although you know you could say they're they're very similar mm-hmm. so so the social pattern emerges out of the biological patterns which emerge out of the inorganic patterns so that means that there's a direct relationship be- between them and molecules at the lowest level and that's how, you know, the, the Persig's theory can encompass all of, of perceived reality and, you know, all of reality. Now, now, at this point, the conversation gets interesting because Christians will often start to feel a little bit pinched because it's going to, Christians are going to feel a little bit pinched because it sort of makes reality sound simply like an emergent property and this property of it's it's phrased in our society like social construct. Now, that's an interesting conversation going on. Gender is a social construct. Race is a social construct. You know, all of these things are social construct. And you might ask, well, why are why why do people get so excited about that in terms of let's say opposition or opportunity, obstacle or opportunity? Well, people people think, well, if it's a social construct, then we can change it. Then we can get rid of racism. And now there's a, you know, they have a point in there that, for example, racism as a public reality has changed quite significantly since, let's say, I was born in the 19, in the 1960s. And you might say, oh, wow, race has changed and race relations are better. And in many ways, they are very much better for a good number of people. It doesn't mean racism has gone away necessarily, but um, I, I think few people would, well, there are people, but some, many would argue, and I would argue that racism is actually a better thing. Say, oh, well, if it's merely a social contract, construct, if it's merely intersubjective, then if we all come to agreement, then we can change a an intersubjective negative thing into a positive thing and that's a that's a that's an absolutely fine thing part of the reason christians get nervous is because well of course they've got some axioms about belief in god and all of these things and nobody likes getting kicked in their axioms or having their axioms sort of shaken but but another piece of it is is the fact that well then then suddenly reality is arbitrary. And if there's something, you know, if there's a significant thing that Jonathan and Matthew Peugeot have done with their symbolism work, and I think this is a central piece of Jordan Peterson's work, it's the assertion that uh, creation, that the world around us is not arbitrary, that in fact, these things are going in a direction. And this is a big undertone between, let's say, a lot of the the Christians and non-Christians in this little corner when we talk about these things. And I think a, a big part of John Verveke's interest in exploration in Neoplatonism is also on the non-arbitrary side of things. And I think a huge part 
of Jordan Peterson's interest and exploration has been on the non-arbitrary side of things. Now, things being non-arbitrary is on one hand gives us an excitement about opportunity because, well, if it's non-arbitrary, then we can um, have some engagement, order, and predictability to the world, which we very much desire. But if it's non-arbitrary, that also means that there are limits on the degree to which we can impact the social imaginary, the degree to which we can, let's say, eliminate racism, the degree to which we can, let's say, blur the lines between male and female, if that is what you want to do. Um, there are limits on a lot of the sort of heady, utopian pursuits that people might want to follow because, well, these constructs are not arbitrary. They are, in fact, pursuing something. They are following something. They are heading somewhere. And so when we get to Sam and John Verveke and some of the conversations about, about evolution, or at least process and change within biological species, process and change within, let's say, these immaterial social existences, the language that we talk about them, we would talk about them as spirits or principalities, or some people like to use the word egregore, and John and Jonathan had a good conversation about that. That's where all of this sort of comes to play and, and, and really gets a lot of attention in this little corner. Is because you don't get social you don't get social values until you get something that evolves from you know the whatever creature came you know came up on the on the um, on the shore from the water. But that those things are entities as much as the you know the creature that came up from the water, if that makes any sense. Well, let me read you what um, what was in the Andrew Clavin article mm -hmm. and then tell me how that, if, if it fits with what yeah. you're saying. Oh, and one thing I want to say is this is going to sound like it is just strict material, you know, scientific materialism, but, but all the while you have to, you know, realize that in Persig's work is a godlike force called quality. And, and see, now this is going to get interesting because the question of person comes to the fore. And, and Luke, in a, in, in a comment in today's video, I'll just show the video he wants me to talk about. Hey, wait a minute. Nate made a clip. Here's the, here's the main conversation that it is where, where John Verveke and Jordan Daniel Wood really dig down into of the, the question of personhood. And when when Sevilla is, is sort of, you know, dealing with Karen on this, this is the question, is God a personal God? What, what do we mean by person? And th th I do have a few things to say about this conversation. It's, it's not an easy conversation. It's nearly two hours long, and most of the middle of it is, I used the word esoteric before, it really wasn't a fair word, and, and Nate, um, Nate Heil challenged me on that, and, and rightly so. But it was a it was a very abstract and conversation that I think a lot of people will feel is just sort of above them. But even even when we use the word like that above them, as as Peugeot tagged Brett Weinstein on um, now five years ago, why did you use above? That's not arbitrary either. Mm -hmm. That is driving these things to happen. That that it's just not random spontaneity. You know, there's, there's something that is toward the good, propelled by the good, that is causing these things to happen. So it's not just strictly material evolutionary theory. Right. There's a telos involved. There's right? a telos, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, in Andrew Clavin's article, he's saying that um, Yuval Harari sort of insists mm -hmm. that. Religion, nationhood, money, law, and human rights are just intersubjective phenomena mm -hmm. existing in the shared imaginations of millions of people. Mm -hmm. That they are fictions. That, mm -hmm. That's yeah. Harari's yeah. word. Mm -hmm. Harari and, and there again, so when we use the word like fiction, okay, so a, a story that doesn't have a high degree of a very specific physical correspondence to it. 
Lord of the Rings. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to hunt around the United Kingdom and find Mordor. You, uh, you might find the Shire in a little village or you might find the Shire in an out of the way place in New Zealand. But, you know, on and on and on and on with this. So, and so fiction and that that gets now there's a reason there's an old reason why that gets Christians nervous, because in a sense, part of what happened with the modernist fundamentalist fight was it said, well, the Bible is a fiction. So when Jordan Peterson says the fiction um, cosmic skeptic that triggers him and says, aha, Jordan Peterson doesn't believe the Bible is true. But of course, there's lots of nested things in there because Cosmic Skeptic has an idea of what he means by true. Jordan Peterson has an idea about it, what he means by true. And there's certainly some overlap in their Venn diagrams, but it's not exactly the same. And so Karen is, is dealing with this, this question of fiction. Rari says, none of these things exist outside the stories that people invent and tell one another. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. And Clavin um, goes on to say, that's not how fiction works. Mm -hmm. Good fiction does not create phenomena. It describes them. Mm -hmm. So it can't be a fiction because it's, uh -uh. it's being described because it's actually there. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, was exactly the point that Peterson was making in his video that when he says again and again, fiction can be more real than, well, than what? Than description, let's say. Because fiction can illuminate and point out and refer to the pattern, whereas, let's say, a more descriptive narrative might be a... Um, an instantiation of the pattern, but it is pointing to the instantiation more than it is pointing to the pattern. And in that way, fiction can be more real because in a certain sense, the pattern is, the pattern and the instantiation have an interesting relationship when we use the word real. Now, now I'm in danger of, 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 of being in the of having some of the same challenges that the John Verveke Jordan Daniel Wood conversation had, but that's this is this is what they're talking about. To me, that's kind of the whole problem with um, even when I hear Peterson and Douglas Murray mm -hmm. and Ian McGilchrist mm -hmm. and and all of them, I I love listening to them. They have ways mm -hmm. of talking about it that are just great, but it almost seems to me that they're unknowingly nourishing a view of the world in which that actuality is no longer there. Yeah. We've just found yeah. a nicer way to talk about the fiction yeah. that we're going to act as if we're going to have a religion that's not mm -hmm. a religion or something mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. going to hold society together. But if it's just a fiction, it's not going to last very long. And, and I think this is exactly where a lot of this disquiet comes from because, well, a fiction is sort of a made-up story that's not going to last very long. Now, obviously, if the fiction is pointing to a pattern, the fiction will be more enduring and there'll be a lot more interest in it than necessarily particular instantiations of it. For example, if you tell a story about a family with an alcoholic father, that might not be of interest to very many people because you might not know about the family, you might not care about the family. But just the way that I phrased it, a family about an alcoholic father, now suddenly millions of people who have experienced alcoholic fathers suddenly perk up and pay interest. So in that sense, the fiction about the story of the alcoholic father is more powerful than an instantiation of a story if, and this is the big question, it's some other family that you're not connected with or it doesn't have any anything germane to you. In other words, if the alcoholism of, let's say, um, Fulano down the road has no connection with you, then you don't care. But if Fulano got in his car when he was when he was drunk and he killed a member of your family, now suddenly the alcoholic named Fulano 
is of great interest to you and is more real than just the story, a fictional story of an alcoholic named Fulano who got in, in who, who was drunk driving. So it's it's that kind of complexity that we're that we're dealing with here. And you know, Harari can be the nicest guy in the world, but if well, they they if, say he's not. <laughs> well, even if he were, uh-huh. someone who says that there there are no gods, there are no uh-huh. nations, no yeah. money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination. Yeah. yeah. When the common imagination shifts, what the heck is going to happen? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose Yuval Harari then is the one that's going to tell us how to do things. When yeah, sure. That's right. <laughs> no, I, I get exactly what you're saying. And, and again, Karen's anxiety is coming from the same source that, let's say, the excitement of some trying to say, well, all these things are social constructs. So if we can get enough agreement among people, we can change the social construct. And of course, democracy has a has a piece of this because democracy is based on, well, if the, if the will of the majority believes something, then we can instantiate that into law. Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of creation is going to go along with it. And when when people instantiate things into law that run afoul of certain very real patterns in reality, in time, those laws tend to bring negative consequences, so on and so forth. But this is, you know, this is what what Karen is talking about. Because at the bottom of it, you know, including Peterson, they're having a really hard time. I mean, both Peterson and and John Pervecki. because like to to go in the direction that you're implying they would have to kind of somehow agree that there's a god right mm-hmm. and that's why i think and i'm not going to go on and on about persig i've done plenty of that but i don't i think that persig is compatible with with believing there's a god um not necessarily you know that can work he can work in christian his theory can work in christianity and his theory can work in buddhism but there has to be the sensibility that it isn't something random that starts with particles. And that's the problem that if you don't somehow see something like God or something like quality as uh, the ultimate force in the universe before this duality that happens, the separation of heaven and earth, then you're going to end up with, you know, with a particle, right? You're going to now, now again, see, see what's, see what, see the anxiety beneath the surface, and what Sevilla is addressing. Now, Sevilla is is saying, no, but it's, it can't be arbitrary. It can't be random because if it is arbitrary and it is random, well, basically, I think then you have one of the critical ingredients to the meaning crisis when you say that the world has laid itself out in an arbitrary fashion. You might get excited because social constructs can be re-engineered by democracy and agreement and maybe propaganda and all sorts of ways of trying to change other human beings' mind because things are intersubjective. And then, of course, along comes John Verveke and Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Pichot, and they say, it doesn't really look random. It doesn't really look arbitrary. There seem to be enduring patterns that are connected in ways that are not material and are enduring and and in fact our recognition and participation in these patterns seem vital for the creation of healthy societies and cultures as we go through time okay and then you're you're sort of back into let's say a classical mindset but you might not be knocking on the door of full-fledged theism and I think beneath a lot of these, beneath a lot of these conversations, is in fact this anxiety, especially among theists, that well, part of it is just, you know, I'm a theist and I want other people to be theists because it's actually connected to that same agenda of the social imaginary. That well, if we can have more people believe that they're theists and we can have some agreement about what this God is and who this God is, well then, but but. Now here in late modernity, the end of modernity, there's still not a letting go of this idea that, well, God is impersonal. God is a force. Now, Karen's going to talk about this, and I I really like the way that she sort of counters it. And this very much gets into, you know, the conversation that I had with John Verveke a while ago about sort of... um, 
the modes that we operate in. And, and this, in fact, does get into this question of participation and person here because I think that the proper mode of dealing with that which is both moreness and suchness and that which is beyond what we can comprehend or manage is in fact the mode that we use in relating to persons. It is, it is Pascal's a spirit of finesse rather than a spirit of geometry. And, and once we're dealing with realities such as persons, the spirit of finesse is in fact the proper mode to deal in and we should deal with that in, um, in a personal way. Um, we should act as if the, the being, language is tough in, with this stuff, we should act as if that with, with which we engage is personal rather than impersonal. But this is in many ways the major contention of the Enlightenment and modernity because a big part of that project was to disenchant depersonalize via the scientific method so that very small and sometimes interconnected and complex dynamics could be engaged, we could engage with them in order to achieve particular outcomes that we desire. Boy, this is a thinky-talky video. Going to end up with something that at the mm -hmm. bottom is inorganic. Well, let, let's take that. And then you're going to end up with, you know, somehow see something like God or something like quality as a, the ultimate force in the universe before this duality that happens, the separation of heaven and earth, then you're going to end up with, you know, with a particle, right? You're going to end up with something that at the mm -hmm. bottom is inorganic. Well, let, let's take that picture and move over to organics for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take a human being since we're so mm -hmm. simple to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when or or any multicellular organism which michael levin is always talking mm -hmm. about his idea is that human beings are just a an amalgam of all these various um multicellular communities that came together mm -hmm. accidentally you know mm -hmm. in, in evolution to eventually group up in various groupings and ended up being a human being and that we are a community of communities mm -hmm. which I'm and and you can you can hear in some ways the anxiety in Karen that what what, what word that these um, these evolved accidentally randomly arbitrarily I mean I can understand it's a very useful picture because we have who, our, who did you say again? This is Michael Levin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That we're a community of communities. Uh -huh. My my heart is a community of cells that uh -huh. is working towards a certain project, and my lungs is a community of cells, and my blood is a certain other kind of cell, and then the bacteria that live in me are another community, uh -huh. and that 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 somehow all those different communities came together to make an organism, starting with the simplest ones, obviously, and then uh -huh. moving up through evolutionary process. But nevertheless, a human being... Now, now, this does get into, you know, sort of the Peugeotian observation that, okay, well, this is a this is a lock, but the lock is made of the, the shank, it's made of the housing, it's made of the mechanism, but we see it as a one thing, we see it as a lock. Now, of course, the community of interconnected cellular organisms and structures that make up this physical being sitting in front of this camera here that the light can very easily capture as a distinct person. Um, yeah, there's multiplicity and um, uniqueness. And again, I can put this lock on the gate and now suddenly the lock disappears and it becomes a locked gate. Now, if we want to unlock the gate, suddenly the lock appears and so again, you have the many and the one, the many and the one. Does arise from a unity, mm -hmm. right? There is mm -hmm. a there's a gamete that's formed mm -hmm. when a when a sperm and an ovum come together. Yeah, and that unity is what creates a human being. That unity then springs into this amazing multiplicity, 
which mm-hmm. all seems to have a direction and a goal and a telos and a quality that every one of these um, multicellular groupings, like Levins talks about this, he even uses this language that when they go to build an arm, they signal to each other where to build that arm and how long the arm is supposed to be and when they're supposed to mm-hmm. stop when the arm mm-hmm. is the right length. And so yeah. obviously they're striving towards a palette, a, a pattern of quality mm-hmm. that is somewhere in that cell. Mm-hmm. It's not in the DNA though. The pattern of quality is not in the DNA. So, right. um, so you have this unity arising into this multiplicity, but then even though I am a multiplicity, I am a unity. <laughs> And my yeah. unity will join with another unity. I mean, long ago, it joined with another unity. And the two mm-hmm. of us made another unity that sprang mm-hmm. into a multiplicity. So you can't, if you dissect a human person down into its individual cells, its individual components, you've got nothing. Yeah. Unless you're starting with the individual unity that starts yeah. the beginning of a human being. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. On the other hand, it seems that every cell in the human body carries all the information for the body, which is mm-hmm. like completely unbelievable, you know? I know, isn't it? Yeah. And not just the DNA, but lots of other information besides. Mm-hmm. And, and you can watch a lot of Karen's conversations with Michael Levin. It's it, really fascinating conversations. And in fact, I think he said, Levin said something one time that in the mucosa or in your spit, that that actually they can, they're going to come to a place that they'll be able to diagnose anything that's going on in your body just by looking at the spit. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's going to be, that's going to be something. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to the next little clip? Yeah. Um, oh, and one thing, one thing I wanted to say, though, that just occurred to me is, and this is why I think that, you know, John Verveke is going so much in the direction of Neoplatonism, that um, the one he's talking about is, is the Neoplatonist one, Plotinus, which is, you know, and, and the thing is, in, in um, Pajot, I think, has a very similar conception, like Pajot's, the way Pajot has described God, and the way Plotinus describes God are very similar. You know, they're not an anthropomorphic in any way. They are this force, this this force of creation, mm-hmm. and good and is is the best way I can I can arrive at it. So the, it is it's something that's beyond all comprehension, but we know that it's a creative force for the good. Mm-hmm. Is that is that your understanding of his? Yes, but but I think there's there's this um, proviso that I would make, and I think mm-hmm. that I'm on the same page with Jonathan, and that is that when we interact with, when we if if we can interact with God mm-hmm. at all, we're interacting with God as one of the persons of the Trinity, mm-hmm. either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that is the way that this that God has mm-hmm. manifested himself to man so that we can interact with him so that mm-hmm. because he's so far above and beyond anything that we could ever All understand think, it. that we can't we yeah. can't comprehend we can't interact. Yeah, yeah so, totally inaccessible. Right? right. So God manifests yeah. himself in three persons. Mm-hmm. So he is a personal God. So. The new age type people will think about God as a force, mm-hmm. okay? But if he is just a force, then a force is something that you can manipulate. You can plug yourself into it. You yeah. can power from this force. You can, but that's not the way God chose to manifest himself yeah. to us. He yeah. chose to manifest himself to us as a person, a personal God, you know, the mm-hmm. son who incarnated into the world for mm-hmm. a purpose and and the Father and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, that's our relational connection to God is with a person. Now, this is a really key point that Karen makes, and it's actually a point that C.S. Lewis made in his book, Miracles. 
Let us now apply this to the savage or primitive articles of the Christian creed, and let us admit at once that many Christians, though by no means all, when they have made assertions, do have in mind just those crude mental pictures which so horrify the skeptic. When they said that Christ came down from heaven, they do not have a vague image of something shooting or floating downwards out of the... Um, they do have a vague image of someone shooting or floating downwards out of the sky. When they say that Christ is the Son of the Father, they may have a picture of two human forms, one looking rather older than the other. And we now know that the mere presence of these mental pictures does not, of, its, of itself, tell us anything about the reasonableness or absurdity of the thoughts they accompany. If absurd images meant absurd thought, then we should all be thinking nonsense all the time. And the Christians themselves have made it clear that the images are not to be identified with the thing believed, hence the commandment of, of graven images, um, and not representing God as, as things within the creation. Now, there's a there's a difficulty in there because in order for us to, as Karen said, relate to this God, in many ways we do have to work through analogy. And so father and son is, is of course, an analogy. Or, or God and Israel as husband and wife. You can find that in the Old Testament. Um, they, may picture, they may picture the father as a human form, but they also maintain that he has no body. They may picture him older than the son, but they also maintain that one did not exist before the other. Both having existed from all eternity, I am speaking, of course, about Christian adults. Christianity is not to be judged from the fancies of children any more than medicine from the ideas of the little girl who believed in horrid red things. And you can read about that in the book. At this stage, I must turn aside with the rather simple-minded illusion. We can point out that, the Christian, that what the Christian means is not to be identified with their mental pictures. Some people say, in that case, would it not be better to get rid of the mental pictures and of the language which suggests them altogether? This is exactly the kinds of issues we're dealing with in this little corner of the internet when we're exploring, as Sevilla and Karen are doing, as John Verveke and Jordan Daniel Wood were doing. We're exploring, we're trying to explore what we mean by this, and sometimes the language gets very abstract, and we have all these tiny little differences and implications and nuances which we're trying to tease out with all of this thinky-talky stuff. In many ways, the pictures cut through, even if they are imprecise in some aspects, which is why we're always sort of making new analogies, going back and forth between the pictures, so on and so forth. The people who recommend it have not noticed that when they try to get rid of man-like, or let's say personal, or as they called anthropomorphic images, they merely succeed in substituting images of another kind. I don't believe in a personal God, says one, but I do believe in a great spiritual force. What he has not noticed is that the word force has led in all sorts of images about wind and tides and electricity and gravity. I don't believe in a personal God, says another, but I do believe we are all parts of one great being which moves and works through us all. Not noticing that he has merely exchanged the image of a fatherly and royal looking man for the image of some widely extended gas or fluid. A girl I knew was brought up by higher-thinking parents to regard God as perfect substance. In later life, she realized that this had actually led her to think of him as something like a vast tapioca pudding. To make matters worse, she disliked tapioca. We may feel ourselves quite safe from this degree of absurdity, but we are mistaken. If a man watches his own mind, I believe he will find that what that what. He will find that what profess to be specially advanced or philosophic conceptions of God are, in his thinking, always accompanied by vague images which, if inspected, would turn out to be even more absurd than the man-like images aroused by Christian theology. For man, after all, is the highest of things we meet in sensuous experience. He has at least conquered the globe, honored though not followed virtue, achieved knowledge, made poetry, music, and art. If God exists at all, it is not unreasonable to suppose that we are less unlike him than anything else we know. No doubt we are unable to speak differently. No doubt we are unable, un, unspeakably different from him. To that extent, all human-like images are false. 
but those images of shapeless mists and irrational forces which, unacknowledged, haunt the mind when we think we are rising to the conception of impersonal and absolute being must be very much more so. For images of one kind or another will come. We cannot jump off our own shadow. And he goes on from there. And, and I think that's actually terrifically important in this conversation and many of our conversations because part of what Christians will generally assert is that, and you'll find you'll obviously find Peugeot in this camp, Peugeot who regularly admonishes his followers to go to church because the proper mode of relating is going to involve images, personal images. Now I'm, you know, one colleague of mine in the Christian Reformed Church has often noted that even in an iconoclastic tradition like the Christian Reformed Church, we do not rid ourselves of mental images. And this is the point that C.S. Lewis is making. And Lewis is partially making the point because people would like to say, well, these, these instantiations are, um, are, are insufficient to deal with the known vastness of what even Christians agree is God, beyond our comprehension, etc., etc. Lewis's point is that if we always simply switch to impersonal metaphors, you get right back to, to Karen's point that, well, here's the funny thing with forces. Part of the reason that we really like talking about forces within the scientific revolution was we can, as persons, Manipulate a force, use a force, employ a force, wield a force. If you watch any of the Star Wars movies, well, you know, guess what? Use the force, Luke. And part of what is foundational to Christianity, and I think the other Abraham religions as well, is that God is not a force that we can wield. And Tolkien, of course, gets at this in a tiny little picture in terms of the ring is not a implement that Boromir can wield. Now, of course, the ring is evil and that's a different main, that's a different point. But the point is that we are and are not able to wield things because we are small. And idolatry, by definition, is our attempt to wield God, usually by manipulating things that are, in fact, beneath us within the created order, things that have been put beneath us by, um, by God within the created order, and when we try to use these things below in order to wield that which is above, it is in fact idolatry, and it is deadly, and it is offensive, and we ought not to do it. But that then leads us into, well, what mode of apprehension and communication should we use when attempting to engage with God and relate to God? And I would argue that in fact, as Lewis pointed out, the personal is best. So, excellent conversation between Sevilla and Karen here. Um, I've listened a little bit beyond this point, but I haven't gotten all the way to the end. I heard this part and I thought, yeah, before, before I get too cluttered with all sorts of other distractions and other wonderful conversations out there, I wanted to make this point and I loved how Karen, you know, I saw how what Karen was doing, and and again, and, and I think to those of you who don't feel yourself terribly philosophically minded, so so this was I thought a, a tremendous conversation in many respects. I've actually got some some thoughts about early in it, which which might come to the fore at some point. But many listening to this conversation will say. I need to have had read a tremendous amount of very difficult philosophical material to really sort of track and follow and comprehend everything that was going on. And I'm not going to tell you to not read philosophical material to the degree that um, it helps you and it gives you joy and it increases your agency and your comprehension of the world. If you have if you have that desire and that ability, by all means. But the vast majority of us will not. And what we're dealing with, let's say, in a conversation like this, which is a little bit, which is, I think, quite a bit easier to follow, and even, let's say, going down the 
and I'm not making a comment about anybody's general intelligence of, of anybody on any of these videos. I, I have known the complexity of human intelligence for far too long to be overly simplistic about those terms and to sort of easily rank people in them. But part of Lewis's point in all of this is someone who perhaps is schooled in the stories can, in many ways, out-participate those who are philosophical in the stories. I'm not taking anything away from the philosophers or the theologians or the people who like to read books. It, I merely get back to the point that I made about sophisticated Christians, because in my hierarchy, one's, if God is love, one's relationship with godliness has much more to do with one's ability to love than one's ability to manage philosophy or theology. And again, I do not wish to take away anything from philosophy and theology. There are people that, in order to love God well, must learn philosophy and theology because that is part of their calling and vocation of loving God well with their minds. I don't want to take anything away from that. But I don't necessarily want to rank order them with people who, for one reason or another, by virtue of perhaps their education, perhaps their, um, their, their native intelligence, perhaps any other factor, can in fact love the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as their, themselves without the ability or the desire or the history of managing those things well. So I thought this was a, a tremendous, I really appreciated um, Karen and Sevilla wrestling with what this little corner is wrestling with. And um, so I, yeah, I wanted to play you some of their video. And I know um, this, was a day ago has 150 views. Grim Grizz's video didn't have a lot of views. So I see part of what I do in this little corner is to help bring certain other things to light for many of you that part of what has happened in this little corner is we've had an explosion, a proliferation of little channels that are having conversations and there's way more channels than any of us can watch. And I think even though there's sort of a spreading out of what's going on. I I personally see this as a win because I think key to what we're doing here is that more and more people get to play along. More and more people get to have these conversations. Relations between these people can grow because again, in my opinion, the goal of all of this is love worked out in interpersonal relationships and that love goes all the way up to the one and all the way down to us all which i think is in many ways the purpose of the big story so that's probably good enough for now leave a comment let me know what you think